Vision has just the right mix of music, inspiration and fun to kickstart your day. Rise and shine with Fel and DJ. Weekdays at breakfast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Turning our attention today to the implications for the law, for men, for women, for schools, sport, politics and democracy if transgender gets a foothold in Australian society. Some will already say it already has a foothold. Uh, What do we understand about that? Well, you might be, you might remember, and if you're a regular listener to 2020, last week we heard a disturbing outlook for transgender people from prominent doctor endocrinologist Quentin Van Meter that transgender is a delusional state and that the push to make gender confusion a normal part of the human spectrum is not based on science and is being promoted as a philosophical cult belief. Now, that is very, very significantly controversial. Well, our special guest today, and we'll take things even deeper and further today, our special guest today is on a tour of Australian capital cities as a guest of the Australian Family Association. Patrick J. Byrne is author of the book Transgender, One Shade of Grey. Patrick Byrne is president of the National Civic Council. You might remember the National Civic Council was founded by B.A. Santa Maria back in the 1940s. The Australian Family Association is an affiliate. So I want to make a special welcome to our guest for this next hour, Patrick J. Byrne. Patrick, welcome along to 2020. Uh, Welcome. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Patrick, I hope all those details in the introduction were uh, correct. Uh, The National Civic Council, uh, founded a long time ago, back in the 1940s, uh, is there much uh, connection to those early foundations? I guess values are the issue there. Uh, What are your reflections on uh, the Australian Family Association and and what uh, the Australian Family Association stands for these days? Well, the the AFA is one of our uh, associated bodies, We were founded on uh, five primary principles, the integrity of the human person, um, the uh, family as the basis of society, uh, the centralism, the idea that um, we decentralise political power and economic power as much to give as much control to families and individuals as possible, Uh, love of one's country and patriotism, and um, uh, the virtues, which are, you know, the primary motor of voter of the good in the human person. So we've, they are the, our eternal, virtually, uh, well, as long as uh, the earth exists, they are they're our, they're our primary principles. Now, you're on tour. I mentioned in the introduction a conversation I had last week with Dr. Quentin Van Meter from the United States. You're on mm. tour with Quentin Van Meter. In fact, last night you spoke with him in Canberra at Old Parliament House. Uh, tonight you'll be speaking in Melbourne, uh, tomorrow night in Brisbane, Friday in Perth. So it is a very intensive tour. Can you give us a reflection on how the audiences have received your presentations over the past few nights? Um, they've wanted to hear what we've had to say because it's an issue out there that has arisen the last few years. Every, most people probably listening to your program would be aware of the very controversial Safe Schools program. Um, they're aware of, um, if you're watching television, a lot of the uh, 
trans and associated issues being raised there. And we're very acutely aware about the issues of freedom of speech, um, which a lot of people feel is being restricted in society now by things like governments requiring, as part of the Victorian government is, um, gender-neutral language. Um, and um, these issues are now becoming, you know, aware people in the culture are now being aware of them. So my particular interest has been in looking at how this ideology, as I call it, is being uh, translated into law and the implications that it has, particularly for uh, women and children. Patrick, here we are speaking together on the National Christian Broadcaster, uh, Vision Radio, and there is a temptation when we discuss these sorts of ethical issues that somehow or other it becomes a Christian issue or that the the perspectives that are in contention are those Christian perspectives. But this is not just a Christian religious issue. Uh, This is a biological issue. This is a science issue. How do you approach uh, the sorts of things you write about in your book, Transgender, One Shade of Grey? Well, the book's come about as a result of a lot of people raising questions with us and us then going doing the research. For example, quite a number of parents have come to us concerned over um, trans kids being told in school they can be other than male and female. And I don't just mean the opposite sex, but they can be pan-gender, genderqueer, whatever they want. Most of this has happened in state schools and the parents have come to us as secular. So um, I don't approach this. as It's not a religious issue. It is a biological issue. And the whole idea of transgenderism, and I want to separate the ideology out a bit from um, people who, you know, have had um, been through trans uh, sex change surgery and may have, you know, particular issues and may have particularly feel that that's where their comfort zone is in life. Uh, the ideology, however, is, is something yet again, and it says that you can be uh, on a spectrum of male to female. You know, I could be 80% male, 20% female, um, but that really poses, poses another question. Well, if you're on a spectrum of male to female, don't you have to be male or female in the first place? So it's a, then there's another aspect of it that says you can be uh, non-binary, not related to male and female, but even non-binary, uh, you know, being pan-gender, genderqueer, whatever. Non-binary means not binary, not male or female. See, all the transgender terms in the end really come back to defining something against the biological reality of male and female. And male and female are defined by reproductive functions, uh, which is associated with our genetics and our uh, physiolo- our, 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 our uh, physical makeup and so on. So um, even the word trans, transgender, trans means to change from one state to another. For, from what? Uh, from your biological state as being a male or a female to something else. So all the terminology, as much as it, it really struggles to create itself as, an, as a philosophy and ideology, uh, has to be defined against what people know as the reality of male and female. Uh, what you are saying is that we all start somewhere. We either start as male or female, and scientifically that never changes. So coming to grips with what is happening, uh, attitudes of Australians, changing law, 
Uh, all of this is not based on the science, but it goes a step deeper and gets into this murky field of uh, being an ideology. Uh, this is, is this what you're saying? Yes, I, I, it's a philosophy to start with. Um, came out of a whole range of people named queer theorists, but uh, transgender I use as a synonymous term. And um, But it becomes an ideology when it has a political program for implementation. Uh, and that is the area really of my concern, whereas Dr Van Meter would talk about the, the medical side of this. I, I really talk about the the legal side of it, of how it's been written into uh, various areas of law and the implications that has, uh, very wide implications, very deep implications right across the culture. Uh, Patrick, let me ask you about what some people seem to think of this uh, issue as being, as some sort of a conspiracy theory. And uh, that's sometimes when people talk about conspiracy theories uh, is something that's a little bit ethereal. It's a little bit off in the distance. It sounds like, uh, you know, someone's got a colourful way of thinking about things. But this becomes more a reality, doesn't it, uh, when you talk about this idea that the conspiracy theory may be a an idea of deconstructing Western civilization, uh, talking about how serious the whole issue is. Uh, how do you reflect on... Uh, the sorts of conspiracy theories that might be going around uh, this issue of transgender? Uh, look, I don't see it as a conspiracy theory, but I do see it, as, a, as I said, as an ideology. I mean, I think a lot of people thought we were over the age of ideology 30 years ago when the Berlin Wall came down and communism collapsed. Um, but we're not. And this is another form of ideology that has really taken root. Um, and um, my concern is that it's been written into law through what's called um, what I'd call gender identity laws. That is the, the redefining of the human person no longer as male and female, but by their gender identity. And gender identity is something that a person is said to be able to self-identify with um, um, and self-classify themselves. So you could, as I said, classify yourself as being on a spectrum of male to female or as uh, a non-binary of some kind. You know, Facebook has about 58, I think it is, different gender identities at list. Or, or some people may say, I'm genderless. But there's a real problem when you write this into law because um, um, you don't usually find the definition of man and woman in law. And the reason is it's because it's uh, self-evident. Evident. It's axiomatic. Yet, based on the fact that I'm a male or somebody else is a female, there's a whole series of rights, uh, protections, privileges and access to services that are based on our sex. Uh, for example, what sport you play in, uh, or whether you attend, in some cases, a girl's or a boy's school, um, or you know, what uh, changing rooms you use, um, what sort of medical treatments you uh, are able to receive. Um, now, once you start saying that... Uh, with the definition now that they've written into law of gender identity, that a man can self-identify as a woman. A man can then take uh, claim access to all those rights and privileges and access to services, um, which a lot of women, particularly feminists, uh, are strongly uh, resisting and saying, hang on, you know, we fought for the rights of women to have affirmative action programs and uh, uh, to have... Um, uh, you know, women's scholarships and 
etc., etc. And now men are claiming can self-identify as a female and claim these uh, access to these privileges. But Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. Our talkback line open 1-800-316-316. Our special guest this hour, Patrick J. Byrne, the author of the book Transgender, One Shade of Grey. Uh, Patrick, at this point in our conversation, let's move towards talking about some of the practical changes that happen when the law changes uh, because since the redefinition of marriage last year uh, things have begun to accelerate in this direction here. Uh, What do you note with practical changes uh, whether that be in Australia or around the world in other contexts? Look, there's been a number of big changes here. Um, The first major change took place in 2013 when the Sex Discrimination Act which was originally introduced to uh, um, try to eliminate discrimination against women, get equality for women in the workforce and so on. When it was changed and they removed the definition of man as a member of the male sex and woman as a member of the female sex and they inserted the definition of gender identity. That is, um, your gender, gender means gender. Well, that's a circular argument. Um, mannerisms, characteristics, with or out regard to sex change surgery, with or out regard to your sex at birth. Uh, what it did was, immediately afterwards, the federal government... Um, uh, I'm just going to... Immediately afterwards, the federal government uh, issued, got, issued uh, instructions that um, all uh, government documents now, federal government documents, uh, be required to have a sex identifier that says male, female, uh, X and then in the brackets, indeterminate, that is any non-binary gender identity, uh, unspecified, that is having no particular sex, uh, or intersex, which is really a different thing, you know, altogether. It's a sort of sexual development. Um, and it's, mean, it, 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 it's now on passports. It's now on... Um, uh, this now appears on ATO forms, taxation forms, Medicare forms... Uh, and on marriage certificates. So when a person goes to get married, their um, notice of intention to marry, um, intended marriage now has on it um, um, bridegroom, partner, and then male, female, indeterminate, unspecified, intersex. The point is that it's changing human identity uh, on a whole array of our former legal documents that identify us. And in both the ACT and South Australia, they've put the same sex identifier on birth certificates so that a person can change their sex to be non-binary, indeterminate, you know, whatever. It's fundamentally changing the human person. Now, what it means is that a man can, as I said, one of the meanings of it is that a man can identify as a woman uh, with or without sex change surgery, uh, whether they have gender dysphoria or whether they have any other, you know, ulterior motive. So... 300 women have resigned from the British Labor Party because they've now said that um, under their rules, under their affirmative action rules, a man who identifies as a woman can apply for um, positions that were being uh, allocated for pre-selection uh, to biological women. Uh, it means, and we've seen it in sport, that men who identify as women can start playing in sport, in female sport. 
Now, you know, at a casual level, if you're down at the beach with the family at Christmas and you're all, you know, playing uh, touch footy or cricket or whatever, you know, everyone has a fun time and, you know, it's not an issue. But when you get to the elite levels of sport, uh, men on average have a 10% advantage over women and in the weightlifting it's up to about 37% advantage over women. Now, if this is going to be the standard by which um, rules are made or rules are unmade, in places like sport, you're going to get to a situation where you can have no females, biological females, left on the um, uh, winners' podiums uh, at the elite level of sport. It is um, such a serious issue here that the whole of society is affected. But would you say, and asking you this directly and even bluntly, that women potentially here are the biggest losers from the rise of transgender and uh, definitions of marriage, those sorts of things, uh, women uh, will necessarily here uh, bear the brunt of what's happening uh, because of this uh, transgender move? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, around the world, the, um, uh, the, f- the, the first and most outspoken people against the legal, this very... Um, broadly new legal definition of the human person uh, have, have been uh, many feminists. Um, in fact, they have been the most articulate in some countries uh, in opposition to changes to whether they're uh, anti-discrimination laws or birth, deaths and marriages laws or, or to marriage laws. They are the ones, because I mean, they're the ones in some ways, you can have many, many arguments with them over a lot of issues, but they in some ways have been at the forefront of the right of the fight for the rights for women, um, you know, for equality in the workplace and so on, and they see it now suddenly being uh, taken away. The, the second ones, I think, who are most vulnerable are, are children, because under the Sex Discrimination Act, uh, the definition of a gender identity is applied to all state schools in Australia. Uh, religious and independent schools have, have an exemption at the moment. Uh, and what it's resulted in is, is four state governments, uh, at least four that I've, I've tracked and noted in the book, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, have uh, all issued uh, instructions to teachers that uh, if boys identify as girls, they have to be allowed to use the girls', girls toilet showers, change rooms, play in their sports. And some of the states have made it very clear that teachers failed or the principals failed to uh, implement these policies they are at risk of uh, prosecution under anti-discrimination law. And what that then means is they are then at risk of losing their professional accreditation. Now, this is where it starts to cut in, not only, firstly, at the level of women and children, but then at the level of employment. And, and what do you do when a like, department like the Victorian Department of Human Services says that every uh, first Wednesday is going to be a gender-neutral language day? If you don't comply and use gender-neutral language, does that mean in future what will happen with your contracts with that department? Uh, will they be renewed? Uh, this is where it starts to cut in and, and attack uh, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of association, and, and that is not what a democracy should be about. So something that could almost seem entertaining, benign, and uh, and not very effectual with very minor changes has the potential to balloon, uh, to uh, to begin to develop into something that's very significant, that means jobs will be lost according to the things that you believe as to whether a person is a male or a woman. Look, we're, Yes, look, in, in the book I list about 20 areas of conflict. Uh, I'm sure there's more, but 
these are you know some of the primary ones that stand out and in, in approximately 16 areas of those um, of those areas of conflict you know in in provision of medical services medical research um, you know domestic violence shelters um, women's only organizations um, you know jobs are, are potentially at stake in the future over fail, failure to comply comply with a view that uh, accepting a man as a woman into uh, you know these many areas. Um, look, it has it, it has so many implications. It, it is um, it is quite extraordinary. But I, I think many of our politicians have not realised just how significant these these changes to our laws, both federal, state, and federal, state, and territory, really have. You know, how, how far reaching they are. Patrick, let's take some calls. Talkback line open one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Claudia in Exmouth in Western Australia. Claudia, welcome along. Hello, Claudia. Are you with us? Uh, Claudia, you might like to call us back one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's take a caller from Tasmania. Anonymous caller. Hello, welcome along. Um, look, ha- hello. Um, Look, I've been wanting to ring up on Talkback when these issues are being are being discussed for a long time, and and I want to, even though I'm not naming my name, I want to be honest enough for all the people out there who often can't ring in or or, or would like to ring in but don't, um, because I have a son, I have a son who's been in the homosexual lifestyle for a long time. I also have a husband who is on synthetic female estrogen therapy for prostate cancer. So I have had, quote unquote, my own issues of what I have, you know, I, I colloquially, when I'm, when I'm not crying, when I'm, when I'm laughing, I call it transgendering in my family. Um, and I just want to put in a word for, as a Christian, I believe that, um, you know, we, uh, we, we are meant to talk about spiritual and emotional and psychological and philosophical things, but I want to put in a word for the fact that our spirits and souls are en- encapsulated in our physical bodies and um and and I have an idea um just from my own experience that there are there are other things at play besides people changing laws and people being um you know deluded about this and that and the other um because I totally agree about that but um I also know because of my husband's work in organic agriculture that there is um things being stuffed up in our world with our food chain and there are lots of synthetic estrogens out there and radical feminism mm-hmm has loved the contraceptive pill, etc., etc. Okay, well, there's plenty to go with here. A response from Patrick, because uh, all of these things are not just uh, issues of law, or even uh, issues of uh, physicality. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, effects from environmental pressure on, on these things as well. Uh, your thoughts for the caller from Tasmania, Patrick? Uh, look, I, I think it's a whole area that's... Uh, I don't know the research in that area. I'm not sure that enough research has been done. Have synthetics affected uh, people's uh, growth? Have they affected um, how they think about male and female? I I don't really know. Um, The theorists behind this say, uh, I'm going back to the French philosopher Michel Foucault and subsequent theorists on this, they they say that sex and gender are entirely a social construct. So there's a range of views on, um, by a social construct, they mean, you know, you can, if something is constructed socially, you know, like, you know, you know how, how you're edu- through your education or your uh, clothes you wear or the, uh, 
culture you come from and so on, um, then, then that it can be reconstructed. And they've said, you know, therefore sex can be reconstructed from other than, you know, what biology tells us. So, look, there's a range of um, views on this, and, and I don't pretend to know all the research in the area of, um, you know, what has been used in agriculture, what has been used in foods and so on. Uh, and I think that's an open question yet to be, you know, pro- properly examined. Um, however, as I said, my area of interest really is whether this should be written into law. And I, as I said to you, I think it's very dangerous to write this into law because it particularly uh, erodes the rights of women and it particularly affects children and employment. Uh, Patrick, just before we uh, take another call from listeners, uh, let me just uh, ask you about... Uh, issues of uh, where there are grey areas in the grey. Uh, let me. Uh, there was one caller, one listener who was uh, went to our Facebook page, left a note, and they said they've been born with Klintzfelter syndrome, a biological issue that has gender implications, and he can't alter or change, and has felt somewhat condemned by our conversation today. I wonder how you address those sorts of issues while we're talking about uh, these ideologies and the battle that's going on culturally, that there are some people who are caught in uh, what is somehow biologically uh, an issue that is beyond their their control. What are your thoughts for those people? Uh, I deal with the intersex issue very sympathetically in the book. In fact, I devote quite a section to uh, the views presented by the Intersex Society of North America. Uh, By the way, they say that they prefer to use the term uh, disorder of sexual development, although some, and I respect it, prefer to call it difference of sexual development. Uh, There are a small number. um, They can be partly genetic issues, uh, different genetic uh, makeup. Some women have 4X instead of 2X, some men 1Y uh, chromosomes. Um, and um, they're, they're an important part of the whole discussion uh, around transgender, you know, for, for, for a number of, of reasons. Um, can I say firstly, however, most, and I'm, and I'm quite in the, the Intersex Society of North America, in, in their own studies, most people born with some sort of um, um, uh, issue here identify still with their sex as assigned at birth. And I do I use the word assigned particularly for intersex people. I don't with others because I think sex, sex is not assigned. It is, is recognised. Uh, you assign a name at birth, but you do not assign a sex. It is recognised. It is automatic. It is biological. However, I accept the term um, assigned within the sex people. And I think uh, they should have uh, avenues for, for recognition. And one of the things I've suggested in the book, and I, and I'm, but I'm really saying it's only a suggestion, I think it's up for, their, uh, for them to negotiate with governments, that perhaps on birth certificates there should be an annotation available for them to say that uh, they are born uh, with an intersex condition. But at the same time, they also have the right to be recognised as male or female, if they wish, and most do. And most of the rest from their studies show that um, they identify with the uh, opposite to their sex at birth. And some then do uh, alter their birth certificates to be recognised recognised as such. However, I also pointed out in the book that this is not evidence of transgender. And a lot of intersex people really resent 
the fact that, that they are being put forward as evidence that human beings are not primarily male or female. Um, and do not like the fact that they are being used as part of, or that their, their condition is being advocated as a reason for uh, the gender identity laws that we now have, um, as broad as they are, that you know, dissolves the recognition of male and female for, every, for everyone else. So, um, yes, I, I think it's an, an important issue to deal with, and I think it's also an important issue to deal sensitively with, and I... And I think they do, they have the right to have some sort of recognition and law, and I've, I've made that quite clear in the book. So uh, I hope that helps. Well, I hope that helps too. And uh, for that listener who made that comment, uh, just to uh, en- can encourage I, can them. I add, sure. Can I add just one other thing? Yep. Um, there's a feminist philosopher who points out that the... Um, fact that some people are born intersex is not evidence that human that the rest of the human race aren't male or female, any more than a person born without legs, unfortunately, would be evidence that somehow human beings are not bipedal. That is, that they stand upright and walk on two legs. Uh, the fact that you have anomalies uh, in all sorts of different ways with human beings at birth uh, does not invalidate sort of the essential nature of the human person. And, and I affirm the, the, the essential nature of human person, regardless of whether a person is born without eyes, legs, or with an intersex condition. And that's, that's important to understand, because that's part of the universal nature of the human person, of all human beings, on which we, from which we derive what we call universal human rights. Um, I hope that adds some clarity. I think that is a good clarifying statement and uh, happy to hear from that listener uh, again if you have another comment to make uh, in response. Uh, we're taking calls 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Marion in WA. Hello, Marion. Welcome along. Uh, good morning. Um, I'm mainly living, uh, live in Albany in Western Australia, so um, your lecture is in University of Western Australia this evening. Uh, the uh, that one that you mentioned uh, Friday night in Western Australia at oh, the Social Sciences Theatre lecture theatre at the University of WA. That's uh, that's happening on Friday night. Friday night. Beg your pardon. I'd just like to encourage you. Um, I just read on my Facebook site that there were five thousand um, objections, you know, to the lecture taking place. <clears throat> but thankfully, the um, university hierarchy prevailed and said, "No, no, um, the lecture will go ahead." When I, when you were sort of chatting, and I'm thinking, I go back to Genesis one in the beginning, God created the male and female. And do you think now, because um, because sin entered the world, then um, we now have that our DNA has been because of sin and because of um, I'm trying to explain. Um, is it now that we have these issues in our DNA where, where we're not strictly, you know, there may be genetic fault, that's what I'm looking for, genetic now um, problems that have caused these issues where in the beginning when God created the world and us, there was, there was no issues because he created us, male and female. Marion, you're asking, I think, a biological scientific question, and uh, I'm not sure Patrick will be able to oh. give you a scientific response, but, uh, Patrick, your thoughts on uh, what I believe well, look, that... Look, uh, what I believe our uh, guest... Well, look, yep. yeah, I will make, I will make a, a, com- a comment on it. The, um, um, firstly, I, I have just dealt with uh, 
there are anomalies of sexual development in a very small number of people. And as I've said, I've dealt with that in the book very sympathetically and just, just made a few comments on it a few moments ago. However, um, uh, biologically, male and female are defined by reproduction function. And uh, only a woman can get pregnant and only a man can uh, impregnate a woman. That is the general definition of uh, sex across all mammals and across, <coughs> excuse me, across many species. <clears throat> so regardless of whether there are um, genetic disorders, and there are many of them, um, some environmental, some historical for whatever reason with how genes work, um, that doesn't negate the fact that we still are biological male and female. And it's important to recognise that in law because... Um, as I said before, a whole lot of rights, responsibilities, privileges and access to services are based on the fact that we are either male or, or female. Uh, once you start playing around that, with, as they've done with gender identity, uh, many of those rights and so on are not defined necessarily in law. A lot of them are, are either cultural or, or in various codes. So if you go to the building code, the building code says across Australia when public buildings are built, that you build male, female, and sometimes unisex toilets or, uh, you know, uh, toilets used for um, disability toilets and so on, showers and change rooms. So but once you start mucking around with the definition of gender identity, all that starts to change. Uh, and it has profound effects, knock-on effects in so many different areas. So biologically, I, I think it's important to understand that you don't have to get down to all the nitty-gritty of the genetics. It is still male and female by reproductive function. And that's regardless of whether a person is fertile or not, because you're still talking about potential reproductive function. Uh, Marion... Um, the theorist... Yep. Uh, let's uh, let's draw a line there. That was a, a good response. And Marion from WA, and uh, even though I think uh, Marion's question was uh, to uh, results of the fall and biological changes that could corrupt uh, original uh, ideas there, we might have to save that sort of discussion uh, to get deeper on another day. But Marion, thank you so much for your call. Let's continue to take some calls. We'll get through as many as we can. Paul is in Tasmania. Hello, Paul. Welcome along. Hi, Paul. Hey, how are you? Very well. Paul, what are your thoughts? Well, being that I live in a rather small sort of area, to be honest, I'm rather ignorant, really, of um, gender confusion and gay rights and all those things. But I wonder that when we ascend to heaven, when we've lost our physical body, whether we'll even identify as male and female anymore and just be seen as children of God. <laughs> Well, uh, that's a very good uh, position to hold when you think of these things in a spiritual sense and theologically, uh, standing before God, uh, some of these things might not mean so uh, s of such significance. Uh, but I suspect uh, what happens on earth, you know, when we pray that prayer as Christian believers, uh, you know, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, we could take things uh, deeply into the idea of uh, there being a cultural mandate that comes right back from Genesis and what we are to be as Christian believers, uh, even into these issues of dominion over the whole earth. What does that all mean? Uh, the way that our behaviors are constructed within societies are going to be important for that. But if there is a, a response from you, Patrick, what would your thoughts be for Paul in Tasmania? Look, I don't know in the next life. We'll find out when we get there. Um, 
But what we do know is that uh, we are this way in this life, and that is, you know, what I think we have to deal with now in, in the present. And uh, our laws and regulations and culture should reflect the fact that we are male or female and should respect what biology tells us is reality. Okay, thank you so much to Paul from Tasmania for a great comment. Let's take another call. Sharon is on the line from Eton in Western Australia. Hello, Sharon. Welcome along. Hi. Hi, Sharon. Sharon, what are Um, your thoughts? Yeah, I guess for me where one of my concerns is is that my children, when they were in primary school and would do like swimming lessons and and stuff, they would be in the women's change rooms and there was other Mm. women and stuff and they would have a female teacher come in and help them, you know, when they were little. Mm. If this transgender thing comes in, men who are looking to be uh, inappropriate could claim to be transgender and use that opportunity for um, exploiting our kids and I don't know whether they've really even thought that side of it through much. Sharon, one of the most confronting issues, let's get a response from Patrick. I think it is one of the most confronting issues. In fact, in the beginning of the first chapter, I, I give a number of case study examples of what's happened to people. And A friend of mine was in a public swimming pool in the last year, uh, changing, and a male to female came in who had not had sex change surgery. A lot of ethnic women there, very disturbed. They basically stared him out. And I was talking to some of the women about, some women about this. And I said, look, you know, we can handle it. You know, we're at an age, you know, we've had children. We know how to sort of handle men sort of thing. But they said what really disturbs us is if they can walk this in and do this when there's like a, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old girls in there who can't handle this. And the problem with the law, I, I was talking to a young person recently who, who said to me, you know, not, not all trans people want to, you know, use the women's change rooms. And I said, that's not my con- my concern is not so much the trans the genuine trans person. My concern is that the um, uh, threshold for ident- for a man to identify as a woman is so low that, uh, as one young politician said to me, if half the kids that I went to school with knew that all that boys I went to school with all knew that they all had to do was put on a dress they can get into the women's change rooms, they'd all be gender dysphoric, they'd all be wearing dresses, and they'd all be in there. Uh, That's the issue I have with the way the law has been framed and makes no distinction. It has no way of making a distinction between those who uh, who are genuinely trans, who have got genuine issues, and those who simply want to take advantage of this. And you see this also not only in that particular example, but there's examples of where you've had men who have been in prison for violent crimes who have um, gone partial way through transitioning but not at sex change surgery being transferred then to women's prisons where they've violated women um now is this is this how we treat are going to see women treated in the future so it extends as i said to so many areas of society i've listed about 20 in the book and people need to read it and understand just how broad uh, the areas of conflict become um, and I don't think the legislators have really thought this through. Thank you so much to Sharon from Eton in WA Thank let's you, take one more call Jonathan is in Perth, hello Jonathan, welcome along Yeah, hello. Jonathan, what are your yes, thoughts? You know sometimes we can be confused with a thing that we 
spiritually and biologically or whatsoever, scientifically. We try to take things from spiritual aspect to biological aspect to uh, anything. There was a question asked by the people in the day of Jesus. They talk about a, a family that married, they got seven sons, and all of them married a woman. So they asked Jesus, when they come back, who will be the husband of that woman? All of seven of them married a the woman. They never gave birth, and they all died. Jesus told them simple thing. He said, when we come, there will be no marriage. Nobody will marry. They will be like angels. So mm-hmm. this is why when they talk about spiritual aspect of understanding morning children or having children, it's different from the spiritual aspect of God talking about will be the like angel. So we always easily bring things spiritually to our level and confuse it. So this is what I'm looking at. Uh, Jonathan, good thoughts there and uh, reflecting back to that uh, question asked a little earlier about what happens basically when we get to heaven. And I think uh, the conversation is uh, really around what do we do while we're here on earth. And uh, let me just uh, let me just uh, just bring this down to a stewardship level, because as Christian believers, uh, we might be reflecting on what God might see things uh, into the future when we stand before him uh, in that eternal state. But here we are in our temporal state on the earth, uh, with a stewardship, with a, a commitment to be able to say, as we do, your kingdom come, what does that look like? So we find those principles in God's revealed word, and we look for the best ways that we can implement those so we have a, a watertight understanding of what it is to flourish under God. Uh, so uh, good thoughts there, Jonathan. Uh, anything very quickly to add before we tie some loose ends together, Patrick? No, I'll let you tie the t- loose ends together. <laughs> okay, let's go to tying loose ends together. And I just want to bring this down uh, to something here, uh, which is very practical. A lot of people have been so concerned about that safe schools program uh, that has been taught in uh, so many schools uh, and in some in uh, more places like uh, Victoria than others. Uh, but this is one of those things, if we're talking about practical sense of parents who have children, uh, the way that they are being shaped, uh, what do you say? Patrick, for uh, for people who are concerned about how these things are unfolding, I think it's very concerning. Firstly, that the um, program, although it existed prior to the changes to the Federal Sex Discrimination Act, actually invokes subsequently invoked the Sex Discrimination Act to justify teaching children that they can change uh, their sex or gender. We did polling on this, and the vast majority, I'm talking about over over eighty percent of Australians, say they don't want to talk to children. And secondly, uh, they particularly don't want to talk much higher percentage if, if we've got radical teachers pushing it. Um, children are very um, susceptible to being um, very susceptible to what teachers say to them and what, what they teach them. And particularly, I have great concern for children who are autistic. There's a significant, uh, over, an over-representation of the uh, autistic children in uh, gender dysphoria and in and, and in even in adulthood in the trans, trans community. Now, I, I, have a, I know a young woman who I had a long conversations with about this, and she ended up saying to me, look, I, I'm autistic, she said. They told me when I was a child that I was a rabbit. I would have believed I was a rabbit. So I think it's very um, um, disconcerting that we now have laws that say that people are recognised by their gender identity, that they're grounds to this being taught in schools. 
Um, and then schools being told that if teachers don't um, abide by the state government rules that um, boys who identify as girls can use the girls' facilities, they, their, their jobs are at threat. Uh, I think this is really heading to... This is devolving a, a democracy which is supposed to have uh, an open, keep an open square for all ideas, all beliefs, uh, religious and non-religious, religious, atheist, whatever, but not supposed to adopt any one belief system itself. This is the state adopting a belief system, like an established religion, and in doing so, uh, it is devolving into an authoritarian state. That's my concern. Okay, uh, the idea of devolving into an authoritarian state uh, is an alarm bell that ought to be ringing in all of our minds and uh, even raising another significant issue as you have uh, when children are exposed to the Safe Schools Program there are some who are more vulnerable than others and uh, with the number of children uh, when you're in a conversation uh, with children who have been diagnosed as being on the uh, autism spectrum uh, that might raise another alarm bell there for children who are perhaps more vulnerable to the things that will be taught uh, in a safe schools style program. Uh, Patrick J. Byrne, let me just mention the name of the book in case listeners want to get a hold of it uh, for real insight. It's Transgender, One Shade of Grey. And let me say, speaking tonight in Melbourne at St. Francis Xavier Parish Hall in Box Hill, uh, then tomorrow night in Brisbane at the Tattersalls Club in the CBD, on per- in Perth on Friday, and as one listener said, there's been 5,000 complaints about uh, Patrick J. Byrne and uh, uh, Quentin uh, Van Meter speaking at the Social Sciences Lecture Theatre at the University of WA. Uh, Honour to those who are in authority at the University of WA for standing strong and saying, yes, there is an element of uh, necessity to hear these men speak. Uh, There's significant things that are happening. Tonight, Melbourne, St Francis, Xavier Parish Hall. Uh, Let me just give a website as to where you can get more details. Go to family.org.au. It's family.org.au. And, uh, Patrick, just great to get your insights today. Thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us on 2020. Thank you very much for having me. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.